We were martyred on that day. Gary Witherall said, later reflecting on September 11th, 2001, Gary and his wife, Bonnie, were gospel workers in the country of Lebanon, and they were there when the 9-11 attacks took place, and they saw and experienced a different side of the reactions to what happened on that horrible day. Later reflecting on this day that changed everything for them, both Gary and Bonnie realized that living in the country in which they lived meant daily being willing to give up everything for the sake of Christ. Gary, an Englishman, and Bonnie from the rural U.S. met at Moody Bible Institute during their time there. And with both of them already completely dedicated to God's call of missions on their lives, they quickly fell in love and got married soon after their graduation from Moody. And in total surrender to God's calling, they traded the comfort and security of life in the U.S. for danger and uncertainty in the war-torn city of Sidon, Lebanon. They served and loved the Palestinian people, sharing with them the gospel of Christ. But Bonnie, Bonnie paid a high price for the high calling. She gave her very life taken by a terrorist gunman at the door of the clinic where she worked. She gave up everything for what she believed was most important. And her husband, Gary, lost his most prized earthly good. They knew, they had counted the cost, and they had followed in faith a call on their lives to give up their lives for the sake of the gospel and life was demanded of them. Who is Jesus? It's an interesting question in light of these songs we just sang. I hope we'll see as we work out. It's a question I hope we can all answer. It's a question, in fact, that is asked in this gospel right before we get to the text where we will be this morning, and it's where we need to start now. We're going to have to understand a few things about who Jesus is, his identity, and his purpose before going any further. So turn with me to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be starting in verse 27. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to get one from the back, take it, keep it, write in it. I also encourage you to take notes. I tell the youth group often, take notes. I know there's nothing on the screen, but take notes, if nothing else, to help you focus. So Mark 8, verse 27. Jesus said, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So here, we see the time in the gospel when the disciples finally understand who Jesus is and they proclaim it rightly. They finally say he is who he has been demonstrating himself to be. So who is Jesus? He is the Christ, the Holy One of God. Yes, completely true. But what does that mean 
And why should that affect anything that we're going to talk about this morning? Well, I'm glad you're tracking with me so far and asking that question. That's good. We will, Lord willing, see who Jesus is and why he has come. And and the question that's generated from our text will give us an overall guiding thought throughout this talk. The question is simple, but it needs to be asked by each one of us. It goes, how do I set my mind on the things of God and not on man? And I hope that from that question you will see that to set your mind on the things of God is to lay your life down for Christ. So that's what I hope you see. But I do first want to say that I don't come to you this morning presupposing any wisdom or experience of my own. In fact, if in my speaking to you there is any wisdom for myself, let it be for nothing. Let it be for naught if I speak anything to you but the foolishness of Christ and him crucified. Him who is a stumbling block to those who crucified him and a high wall of offense to all the rest. No, but only let the words that I speak be that of which is the foolishness of Christ. For the foolishness of the Lord is wiser than the wisdom of men, and the weakness of the Lord is stronger than the strength of men. Pray with me. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Here we have Jesus transitioning now to tell his disciples the reason that he has come. We know, and we will see in Peter's response to him in the next verse, that the idea of the anointed one is that he is not supposed to suffer or die, and that his kingdom is not ever supposed to end. We can see this all throughout the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, this coming one of God. He is the one who will conquer. He's the one who will crush the heads of the enemies of God. He will be victorious, and those who trust in him will be on the winning team. We know this. But we also know that his way of conquering will look different from our way of understanding a conqueror. We know that his thoughts on what should be done are not our thoughts on what should be done. His ways are higher than our ways. But not only this, he has told us what his ways with this Messiah will be like. We just must remember. And we must look at Peter's rebuke of Jesus and Jesus' rebuke in turn in light of what we know the Messiah, the Christ of God, would look like. So we can find scattered all throughout the Old Testament what the Messiah will look like, but we'll just focus on a couple passages that I believe will set the stage for what Jesus is saying here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bounce around through several Old Testament passages. I encourage you just to write them down. You don't have to turn there. Look at them later. But just listen with me. So in 2 Samuel 7, we see that the Christ will be a king in the line of David. And in Psalm 72 and 110, We see that this king will judge with righteousness. He will defend and deliver the cause of the poor and needy. He will crush the oppressor. He will make all the enemies of God his footstool, and his rule will never end. 
Not only this, but we see that he will be given power and dominion and glory, as we see in Daniel 7. And he will be given all of this so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And yet we see again that his dominion is everlasting and his kingdom will not pass away. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So this view of the Messiah that we just looked at is the picture of what we're looking into when we see Peter's rebuke of Jesus in our text this morning. But here, what we're about to look into is the picture we see with very familiar words when we hear Jesus say what must happen to him. So looking back in the Old Testament, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our sorrows and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And though it was the will of the Lord to crush him, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Isaiah 53. So now, with both of these views of the Messiah in mind, when we look at Jesus' words here, we should see it perfectly. Yes, the anointed one of God will come and deliver, and he will crush the enemies of God. But he will do so by suffering. He will crush by being crushed. He will conquer by being killed. He will set up his kingdom by being a servant who is slain. And yes, he will rule and reign by being raised. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Verse 33 But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We hadn't understood the whole picture. And clearly the disciples hadn't remembered it all either. They weren't looking to what God had planned in all of this. They were only looking at what they thought was right. And if we would look at this honestly, without looking at the very end of the story like we can do, I think that we would be right there saying the same thing to Jesus. <laughs> no, 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 Lord, uh, hold on a minute. I, I don't think you get how this whole thing works. I don't think you remember. The Messiah doesn't lose, okay, Jesus? He doesn't suffer and die. You need to be saying the right thing. Otherwise, people are going to start doubting that you're actually him. But no. Jesus rebukes Peter with saying that he was not setting his mind on the things of God, but rather setting his mind, his thoughts, his hopes, expectations, his desires. He was setting them all on his own thoughts of what should happen and not on God's. He was relying on his own view of what Jesus was supposed to do, not God's. No. Why did Jesus 
the Christ come? He says here plainly, to suffer, to be rejected, to die, to be raised. Okay, so if that's true, then why was this necessary? Mark 10.45 tells us, and it tells us what Isaiah had prophesied centuries before. It says, For the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, so we start to see something formulating here. We see that in order to set your mind on the things of God, you must rightly understand who Jesus is and why he had come. Let me take a minute here and pause from this for just a second to say, do you want to know God's mind? Do you want to know his heart, his will, his desires for your life? Dear friends, look at the Bible. And what was Peter's mistake here? I should add that the other disciples and most of the time, most of us too, what was the mistake? It was not remembering the promises of God in his word. Do you want to hear from God in your life? And hear him speak to you. He will tenderly lead you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Deuteronomy 31.6 I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Hebrews 8.10 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Can you know the will of God for your life? Yes. And that is to know him and follow him. And that is done by knowing and understanding his word. Okay, that's the side note. That's over. Go to verse 34. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples... He said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. How do you set your mind on the things of God? To set your mind on the things of God, you must rightly understand who Jesus is, why he has come, Yes, but that is not enough. You can't just rightly understand. You must realize that he is worth following and be willing to lose everything to go after him. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. What it means to set your mind on the things of God is to take hold of Christ as your greatest treasure, your highest prize, your deepest longing where you no longer seek to satisfy yourself by trying to bring profit to your life from gaining the things of this world, not being ashamed of who Christ is and what he has come to do, but instead taking him at his word, believing he is who he says he is, believing he came and did what he said he would do, and taking hold of him as the one thing that will satisfy you and give you life. 
So we can, we can now see that to set your mind on the things of God, you must rightly understand who Jesus is, why he has come, and that he is worth following. But you must also understand how he was able to do what he did. And I, I don't mean the how as in because Jesus is God and God is the only one who could perfectly pay the ransom cost to God for our disobedience against God. No, that's true, but that's not the how I mean here because we can see clearly in Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Then down in verse 15, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. What man cannot do, God does do. Okay, but that's not the how I'm talking about. The how I'm, I mean here is he went to the cross in the same way that he did everything else in his life. He obeyed God. So when it was time for him to go to the cross, Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. How did he go to the cross? He went for the sake of the joy that was set before him. The joy of being forever united with his father as his father looks on him with pleasure, knowing that he perfectly obeyed him unto death for the joy of the resurrected life. That is why. So that is, I believe, simply put, the text. So how does that now apply to us? How do we apply Jesus' command to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him? How do we follow him as he has commanded us? I see there being two distinct but very intertwined ways. First, there are, I believe, some of us here today who God is calling to physically lay down our lives for the sake of Jesus and his gospel. Some of us who, for the sake of the gospel, are called, being called to be seeds that are laid down into the earth so that life, abundant life, Life that may never be viewed on this side of eternity, but so that this life can grow up and flow in places where the life and the light of the face of Christ Jesus is not yet shining and known. I do believe that is something true of certain ones of us here, hearing my voice. Though none knows the time or the place and though none should walk into something ignorantly seeking out martyrdom, I believe that it is not for naught that following our Lord is described as taking up a deadly, a very real, physical, tangible torture and killing device, taking it up, instead laying down our lives. I don't think it's for nothing that our Lord went to the cross willingly as a lamb being led to the slaughter and that we who follow him are to be like him in his glory and in his suffering. For a servant is not greater than his master. And truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Not only that, but blessed. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's some of us, I believe. But for all of us, we would, I believe, be missing the point if we only focused on a physical martyrdom and not what we are all being called to here by our Lord. To daily die to ourselves in order to follow him. Daily looking to how we can be satisfied in him and not ourselves. Daily losing our lives in obedience to him. Daily fighting to release control over the situations over which we have no control. Daily slaying our sinful habits that we might live to godly habits. Daily doing these things because there is joy, unspeakable joy in store for those who follow our Christ into this kind of life-giving death. It means we give up the rights that we think we own to have our breath, to have our life. And it means we give up the rights we think we own over the lives of our loved ones. We give these up for the joy that is set before us. Why, after all, did the Christ go willingly to a cross? For the joy that was set before him. Why do we pick up our cross? Not just from some compulsory obligation to follow him, but for the joy that is set before us. We follow him because there's nothing greater to dedicate our lives to. No one greater to give up our everything to and follow with action. We follow him because we realize that he is a treasure. As if we have found a treasure hidden out in the field. A treasure so great that we go sell all that we own to buy the field so that we can have that treasure. That is why we give up our lives for his sake. Because in giving up ourselves for him, we don't lose. We gain treasure. We don't just get life. We get Christ. He is our salvation. He is our deepest pleasure. He is our greatest longing. He is our most fulfilled desires. He is the one from whom we drink and are satisfied, causing within us to spring up living water that flows He is our life, and in him this life does not end. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever loses his life, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Why? 
because I am the resurrection and the life. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, says our Lord. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says our Jesus. Therefore, go. It's as if he's saying, come follow me so that you can go and die to yourselves and find life and then go and share that life with everyone else. Go and make disciples. This is why we do this, because he is our treasure and our delight and we therefore give up everything in order to live out our lives in day-by-day obedience to him. Because he's worth it. And this isn't a message on missions. No, if it was a message on missions, I would say something like, have you felt the Lord's calling on your life and haven't acted? Are you kicking around your life as if there's time to spare? Are you putting off the obvious direction in which you believe God is leading you in order to chase something else? Family, we know that life is short. We have just experienced that very really in our lives. Is it Malaysia, China, Burma, Indonesia, Yemen, Saudi, Ecuador, Surrey, Newport News? Are you wasting your life? Are you coming, going through motions here in church, not living your life out for him? Friends, don't waste the time that the Lord has given. Gary and Bonnie Witherall didn't waste their time, and they paid dearly. But for them, the Lord has prepared life everlasting but this isn't a message on missions, so I won't use up time with saying anything about that. This isn't an evangelistic message either. No, but if it was, I would say to all of you who haven't trusted in this Christ I've been talking about, you don't have this treasure that I've been talking about. You don't have this treasure of life. You don't have life to look forward to. In fact, for you is reserved death from which there is no return. But that outcome is not what must be. You can take hold of this treasure. You can reach out and take hold of Jesus and all that he has done for you and follow him with your life. It is not what you have done that will gain your life. In fact, remember, If you try to gain life on your own, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for him, you will gain it. But this isn't really a message for you. No, this is a message for those of us who already believe. And if in hearing my words you are now taking hold of him, dying to yourself and trusting in who he is and what he has done, then praise God, this message is for you. But you who have taken hold of this treasure, this treasure, in fact, it's so great that you go to sell everything you have in order to buy the field with the treasure. Only, 
you realize you don't have anything worth enough to buy the field with the treasure. There's nothing that you have that's worth enough to even buy the field where the treasure is. But you know there's still one way. <laughs> you know, it isn't easy. In fact, it means giving up a lot more than just your stuff. But you know, you know this, this one way that if, that if you sell yourself and all your stuff to the owner of the field, and you become his slave, relying on yourself being enslaved to him and who he is, and you know that you'll get the treasure that's in the field. You know it's the only way. You know it. And you know that if you become a slave to the master of the field, you take hold of everything that's buried inside, so you do it. You reorient everything in your life around this in order to take hold of this treasure. Everything in your life changes around that. But after you have it, family, after you have this treasure, you've taken possession of this thing that's so great, you cannot keep it to yourself. No. If you have the treasure, then go and tell the world of the treasure you've found so that they too may have life. That is for those of us who believe. That is who this message is for. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.